You're listening to the Eyes on Conservation podcast, episode 98. Welcome to the Eyes on Conservation podcast, where we bring you engaging conversations about conservation and wildlife. I'm your host, Matt Podolsky. Our guest on today's show is Jake Keel. Jake is the director of the new documentary film Death by a Thousand Cuts, which is about illegal charcoal production in the Dominican Republic and the trafficking of this charcoal to neighboring Haiti. It's an intense and powerful film, and Jake's story about how he became inspired to launch the project um, is also particularly fascinating. As you'll hear in the interview, Jake's career in conservation actually began in the tourism sector, and I really enjoyed hearing about how this experience was translated into filmmaking and storytelling. Let's jump in. My name is Jake Keel. I am vice president of the Grupo Punta Cana Foundation in the Dominican Republic, and I'm also the co-director and producer of the documentary film Death by a Thousand Cuts. Awesome. So, Jake, how long have you been living in the in the Dominican Republic? And and maybe you can explain um, your connection with uh, with this Caribbean island nation. Sure. So I've been working full time uh, in Punta Cana for almost twelve years, um, and essentially the the island sort of was it seemed like it was almost my destiny to work here. When I was 16 years old, I did a study abroad in high school in the Dominican Republic. I lived with a family in San Cristobal, which is a city outside of the capital city of Santo Domingo. Um, And I had studied Spanish, but really had never used it and had never tried to converse or uh, interact with people in Spanish. I'd basically just been studying it. Um, And the warmth of the Dominican people really is what drew me into learning Spanish, learning more about, you know, Latin American cultures, about the Caribbean, because the people were just so warm and friendly and inviting. And you could just feel this like genuine, you know, hospitality about the people. But I really just couldn't communicate with anyone when I first got here. So um, from then on, you know, I sort of dedicated my, you know, travels and career and life to visiting places in Spanish-speaking countries and in Latin America. Um, and I always just kept getting drawn back to the Dominican Republic for different reasons. So I did uh, community service projects in the Dominican Republic. Um, I've done research here uh, for my master's work at Cornell. Uh, and since then, I've now been working uh, in the tourism sector for, for close to, you know, 12 years. Very cool. So tell me a little bit about you know, this, this role that you currently play, I mean, what, what you're doing uh, out there in, in Punta Cana. So um, in Punta Cana, we are one of the first resort developments in the Eastern Dominican Republic. Started 47 years ago, and it was essentially uh, shortly after the fall of the Trujillo dictatorship in the late 60s, um, a group of American investors bought a chunk of land in the eastern Dominican Republic where there was really no population, no roads, no energy, no electricity, water, uh, no infrastructure, and not even really cities. It was basically some small towns. And they met up with a young Dominican, pretty precocious guy named Frank Ranieri. And Frank Ranieri was really the first one uh, that made the suggestion to them that this land that they had purchased, which 
was cheap in certain sense. It was 30 square miles of virgin or somewhat virgin forest and coastline. Uh, he made the suggestion that this could be developed for tourism. Now, today that seems really obvious because Punta Cana is one of the fastest growing tourism destinations in the Caribbean. 40,000 hotel rooms just in our region alone. We get 3 million arriving passengers to the region uh, through our airport. And, you know, it's become this huge economic hub for the Dominican Republic. But in 1969, in post-Trujillo Dominican Republic, there really wasn't a lot of tourism in the country. I think there was 1,500 hotel rooms total for the entire island. And it was not a place that people went to because, you know, it was like you after a dictator, it's not exactly attractive for a you know, vacation destination. There wasn't airlift. There wasn't rooms. And so Ranieri basically made this suggestion to the group of investors. They took him up on it. They started with uh, some small hotel developments. They eventually sold a chunk of land to Club Med. And Club Med was in sort of the beginning stages of their development, all-inclusive resorts. And then Club Med and Punta Cana got into business starting the first private international airport uh, really in the world. Um, and, it, and that was really the big innovation that really turned the corner for this region. There was no way to get here. And all of a sudden they started an airport and they got a few flights. It was inaugurated in the 80s. And then they got a few more flights. And then uh, as they got more airlift, there's so much beautiful white sand beach in this end of the island, started attracting international hotel chains. And then all of a sudden you have you know, major tourism development in this area to the point where now it's you know, it's a massive tourism destination. And so that was really the beginnings of Punta Cana. And so I give you that background basically because, um, because our company still owns and operates the international airport, we're very dependent in terms of our economic success on the success of the whole region. Right. So if the Punta Cana hotels, not, not even hotels that we own, if they're no longer successful, we'll have a lot less air traffic at the airport. And so we'll be less successful. And so we have a vested interest in the long term sustainability of the region. And so our company invests really heavily in sustainability in, uh, in the local community, education, health, water systems, uh, environmental protection um, as a self-preservation mechanism and as a you know, business security mechanism. And so I head up all of our sustainability program. Very cool, yeah, and and, yeah, I, and feel I, free to interrupt any time. I could talk about Punta Cana all day. <laughs> <laughs> no, I mean that's good, and and I, you know I do want to sort of delve a little bit into you know uh, what you're doing and in, in you know these sustainability programs that that you're involved with and that you're running in in the region because you know I mean I think a lot of people when they think of tourism development like that's sort of the last thing that they would envision is a part of that is like sustainability and environmental conservation so. You know, and I mean, you talked a little bit about how those two things are connected, um, uh, but you know, yeah. To, I mean, tell me a little bit more about about these programs and 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 you know why this is like why it's so important, why there is this connection between environmental conservation and sustainability and tourism. Well, I mean, in in a place like the Dominican Republic, the major attractions. I mean, even for me, the main reason I I started coming to the country and was so attracted to the Dominican Republic in the first place was, you know, the warmth of the people, the hospitality. I, I loved the culture, right? The music, the food, the dance, the you know, the the, the language, the expressions, like the, the uniqueness of Dominican culture. Um, and then also, the, you know, the natural resources. This island has an incredible diversity of habitats, of mountain ranges, of species that only exist here. 
And so those are a major attraction for tourism, you know, the natural resources and the human resources, right? So the culture and the, and the environment are what draw people here in the first place. So in our view, if you're not investing in, you know, improving the lives of the people that work at your resort, and if you're not investing in protecting the environment that attracts people in the first place, then you're probably not going to be successful over the long term. So that's really how we do it. And so we, you know, in a very practical sense, um, our foundation, we've integrated solid waste management programs. We call it zero waste. The idea being that everything we produce, whether it's what arrives in the international flights or is produced in our hotels or in our private home residences, we try and find some use for that normally what you would consider garbage, we try and find some productive use for it. So we sell recyclables. Um, we have a large scale composting program. We have waste classification in our hotel kitchens and in most of our private homes. And the idea being that right now, you know, we're not zero waste, but we're diverting close to 58% of all the garbage we produce within our resort, including the international airport, from going to a local landfill. And those are those are pretty solid numbers for waste diversion. Um, and for us, it makes a lot of sense. It saves us money in waste hauling. It protects our, our water source because we have some real weaknesses in the in the landfillings here, the landfill systems here. So for us, it makes sense to invest in these kind of things. We invest a lot of money and a lot of effort and a lot of uh, staff time in coral reef protection and restoration. Uh, we have one of the largest uh, coral reef nurseries, uh, in-water nurseries in the Caribbean. Uh, we mostly work with staghorn coral, although we're starting to diversify with other species. We have a number of uh, no-take fishing zones, and we work with the local fishermen to hire them to get them into more tourism-related activities and less pure fishing, exploitative activities. So basically everything that we see that's related to the environment that currently could be a, a risk for us as a business, we try and find some way to, to build some kind of sustainability into it that we find, whether it's finding alternatives for fishermen, implementing a waste management program, uh, protection of endangered species. Like we're pretty, we have a diverse roster of programs. It strikes me. And again, like, you know, I, I, I guess I'm sort of curious to know how this approach and this model for developing, you know, tourism industry um, in this part of the Dominican Republic and the Caribbean, are there other groups that are working in a similar space or i mean is is what you're doing uh i mean do you guys sort of stand feel like you stand apart from other uh, tourism developments in the caribbean are there other folks that are sort of looking at what you're doing and trying to uh, uh sort of emulate that yeah you know i think there are different scales of this right so there are eco lodges or small scale ecological hotels or eco resorts that have, you know, programs, whether it's, you know, water saving in the rooms or the towel reuse program or uh, local purchasing of uh, materials and supplies and food. There's lots of certifications, lots of hotels doing different things. But I think what makes us unique is one, we're so big, you know, we have uh, close to, you know, 2,500 employees directly for our company. Plus, there's another Two to three thousand employees that that work for other companies, but only work with us. You know, people that provide services in the airport. Um, so really, you know, we are quite unique in the sense that we own and operate an international airport. We have golf courses and private private residential communities. We have hotel properties, um, and because of the way that this region has developed, we have our own electric company. We have our own water distribution company. 
we have a, a, a water treatment facility for our resort and we recycle all of the water for use on the golf courses. Um, we have our own recycling center where we classify, you know, in the high season anywhere between 25 to 30 tons of garbage a day. So we have all these unique programs. So what makes us different than a lot of other, you know, ecologically friendly hotels is that we're not just a hotel, we're, we're a whole complex. We influence the value chain of tourism in all different ways. And I think that's what makes us unique. And what we've tried to do, again, because the success of other hotels in our region is so critical to our success financially, we've tried to share our experience. Now, we don't run some of these all-inclusive hotels. We're not in charge of their operations. We can't, we're not the government, so we can't tell them what to do. But we try and share best practices. We try and encourage best behavior. We try and facilitate that there's solutions for some of these challenges from, the, from some of the hotels. And, you know, frankly, we've published business case studies about our, uh, about our waste management program. We share all of our data related to our refrestoration program. You know, we're very open about having visitors come and visits from other companies and universities and, you know, governments come and see what we do and, you know, try and learn from what we're doing and, you know, basically turn it into a learning experience. So I think that, that also makes us quite unique. At this point, I'm very curious to hear about how this this role you're playing in, you know, essentially ecotourism, right? I mean, how this evolved into uh, an interest in filmmaking and, and storytelling, right? So, I mean, uh, you know, maybe you can tell us, I, I assume there must be a story about where the original idea for, for <laughs> yeah. your film, Death by a Thousand Cuts, came from. For sure. Well, so uh, basically, I've been in the Dominican Republic for 12 years. And, you know, I had, when I started, my background is in environmental management. My interest is in conservation of species and of habitats. Um, and I got into tourism because I thought there was a really unique opportunity to gain experience in a private sector setting, but really pushing um, environmental ideals in this private sector setting. I never really wanted to work for the government. I'm not really a fan of having to, you know, really be limited by, you know, some of the restrictions of government. I really wanted to have sort of a laboratory for experimentation. And in some ways, uh, you know, the private sector is a good place to do that. There's, there's a lot of uh, open space to operate in terms of environmental issues because there's there's not a lot of really solid experience here. So that's where I got my my start. It was in tourism, and I really had no background in tourism before I came to Punta Cana. And so I started applying some of the ideas that I had learned at Cornell and some of the things that I was learning from what other people were doing in different different uh, private sector businesses and applying it here. But um, I had done my uh, master's research work in the Southern Dominican Republic in a mountain range called the Sierra de Bauruco. And that area for me was sort of a life-changing experience. Um, the Sierra de Bauruco is a paleo island, meaning it at one point was separate completely from the island of Hispaniola. So islands typically have a much greater diversity of species and endemism, species that only exist on an island, than other places, than mainland continents. Um, and Hispaniola, uh, you know, Dominican Republic and Haiti has a really high endemism of species. But the Sierra de Bauruco mountain range had an even more acute uh, uh, species um, endemism. So it had a really high diversity of species. It was this beautiful mountain range. It's just stunning that starts on the coastline and heads up into the mountains. And that's where I decided to do my master's work. But it became really apparent, even in 2001, when I started doing the work, that this mountain range was being heavily impacted. And it wasn't being heavily impacted in the way that you think 
think of for a lot of tropical forests where they're, you know, cleared massively for agriculture or for grazing cattle or for production of soy. Um, it wasn't these large scale clearings. It was something much slower and more gradual and piecemeal. Um, and it was these sort of small chunks of forest in the in the highlands that were just disappearing. And then when the rains would come, it would wash away the soil and they would stay bare. And so you had these these sort of steep slope mountains that all of a sudden had missing patches. And those missing patches kept expanding and increasing. And so I became really intrigued by that. And then I also was really interested that here was this national park in uh, the Dominican Republic, which is, you know, it's a developing country, but it's but it's fairly well off um, for compared to many other developing countries. It's now considered a mid-income country. And it shares its border with Haiti, which is notoriously a very uh, poor country uh, with a lot of problems politically and economically. And this national park was right sharing the border with Haiti. And so you have this with this terrific, amazing biological resource right on the border of an area with this tremendous poverty. So I thought that that, you know, contrast was really striking. And then you had, uh, as we discovered, there was two major threats to the park. One is uh, an invasion of agriculture, uh, large-scale agriculture for production of avocados or for uh, shifting agriculture uh, of different crops, you know, subsistence crops and, you know, uh, seasonal crops. And then you have this production of charcoal. And the charcoal was fascinating to me because it's a product that's not widely used in the Dominican Republic. And practically, you don't see charcoal anywhere. And the ovens themselves are made very discreetly, deep in the forest, hidden from view. And so you have these, you know, these secret production of charcoal, um, but it's having this impact on the forest. And almost the, all of the charcoal produced is then sent to Haiti, to nearby Haiti. And so we thought that that was a really interesting um, contrast. You have one country which has this biological, ecological wealth um, and it has, you know, these forests and a national park right on the border. And then the other side, you have this acute poverty. Uh, you have a real need and people rely on charcoal as cooking fuel. And so we thought we would look into that issue and figure out, you know, what, what are the challenges there and what are the risks for both of these countries? And, you know, is there a, a potential for this turning into something more important, a bigger risk and, and with, with greater consequences for both countries? And so, I mean, at what point did you start thinking that there was a story to tell here and that, and that maybe you were the one to tell that story? Yeah, so I was really interested in the idea. Um, I had no background really in film. And so what I decided to do was apply for a Fulbright uh, grant, a Fulbright uh, scholarship, um, and to do an academic study on this uh, area of the Sierra de Bauruco and do sort of documentation by transects but using multimedia as the means, you know, as rather than writing sort of a really interesting paper uh, on, you know, the deforestation of the of the Sierra de Bauruco and the production of charcoal, decided it would be really interesting to try and document it visually with photographs, with video, with interviews of local people and sort of travel along transects to do this work. And when I applied for the Fulbright, I did a lot of work. I had, you know, really good access to information. There had been quite a few studies in this area. Um, and when I was in the process of applying, I sort of turned myself into somewhat of a quasi-expert on the subject. And then uh, I didn't get the Fulbright, 
But in the process of applying, um, I started talking to a, a friend of mine who's a you know documentary film producer, uh, Ben Selko, who works you know he's worked on projects all over the world. He's worked for CNN, for HBO, for Netflix, for you know many different TV channels. He's done you know uh, feature length documentaries. And he's got a lot of experience and and he sort of asked me just casually what I was up to and I told him about my proposal. And he said, you know, if you're going to dedicate all all this time and effort and resources to something academic, you know, we should really think if this has potential as a film. And that's really how it started. Um, He and I wrote a a proposal, sort of a a film treatment document, and then – I brought him down on frequent flyer miles, and we did a road trip through the Sierra de Bauruco. We covered almost 600 kilometers of land, drove all over the place, and started interviewing people and talking and sussing out whether there really was a potential for a story there. And uh, and we and we discovered ultimately that we thought there really was. And so we were able to get some initial financing as a grant from the uh, the, the embassy of the of uh, Holland and the Dominican Republic. And we started putting together ideas and our story, and that's when the murder happened. This was in 2012, um, and the murder was a Dominican park ranger who went to apprehend a Haitian charcoal producer in the national park. Uh, and there was a some kind of conflict between the two of them, uh, and, and, and they end up getting into some kind of fight or argument. And the end result was that the Dominican park ranger, Melanio, uh, was murdered by Machete, by um, by the patient charcoal producer. Um, and so that became sort of our entrance into this bigger story, you know, the, the idea that there could be conflict between Dominican Republic and Haiti, that the natural resources were uh, sort of a touch point for these two countries. One had m- much better access to natural resources and in better shape than the other. Um, and, and we thought that there was a sort of a poignant tale to be told through this this murder. Absolutely, and and you know I, I had the opportunity to, to to see your film when I was uh, down in the Dominican Republic um, at the Environmental Film Festival that um, is hosted down there, and I mean it's it it is a really sort of powerful way to to enter that story. You immediately like get to know this person's family, and you're introduced to all these characters, and you're introduced to this issue like right off the bat. And, you know, your film, it, it's sort of, you know, I, I mean, sort of like you said, it starts with this, this one incident and then it just sort of expands into this, this, you know, much larger scale issue than, you know, I really ever could have imagined, you know, this topic of charcoal production could have become. And, and I, I, so I, I do want to sort of delve into like a little bit about the scale of this issue and, 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 you know, where the story sort of went and how the scope of things really expanded. But before we go there, I, I am curious, I, I want to ask you about your actual approach towards putting this film together, because what you have now is, is a feature-length film um, in Death by a Thousand Cuts, but you guys started off by producing um, a, a short film, right? Tell, tell us a little bit about, about that approach. Yeah, so when you're making a documentary film, we knew from the beginning that this wasn't the type of story that we could come in with a huge crew and a huge team and just knock out in, you know, a handful of visits. Like we knew that in order to get access to folks, to get them to tell us their story, to really feel comfortable with us, um, and to and to really, you know, share intimacy about their lives and about their experience in this area, that it was gonna take a number of visits, it was going to take time and it was going to take 
um, kind of a lot of, you know, investment of, uh, you know, personal investment from our part. And so um, we didn't have resources when we started the project and we knew that we would need them eventually. Um, but the, what we wanted to do is take the initial resources we got and produced a concept paper of what the full film would look like. And so we did an 18 minute sort of teaser and that 18 minute teaser basically showed um, what the, the the film style would be like, the quality of the filming, uh, the type of visuals that we wanted to capture. We really were seeking to make a sort of personal drama thriller that could then be uh, transfer, tra- translated into sort of a documentary of, with an environmental uh, messaging. So if, if for us, it was really important to kind of get something out that we could share and that would serve as sort of our proposal um, to, to, to get investors and get interest from, you know, potential sponsors of the film. And that's essentially what happened. So the, the, we put together this 18-minute um, sort of teaser then we, we showed it at a few small uh, venues. Um, we got some interest, and then eventually the project was acquired uh, by Participant Media and Univision as a partnership they had together for for, for documentary content. Um, and then we also took advantage of a film incentive law in the Dominican Republic, which allows companies to invest in film product projects as long as you know they um, comply with a certain number of uh, requirements. And so we were able to get resources from the film incentive law and then from the participant media and Univision partnership. And that's really how we got to really get into doing more visits to the border, more visits into the families. We got into Haiti quite a bit. Um, we were able to do, Oh, you know, get a little more specialized with the type of equipment we were able to use. Um, and we were able to, you know, really kind of delve into the project and spend, you know, good quality time on the edit and, and put together the, the product that we were able to at the, at the end. Yeah, absolutely. And, you know, like I've said before, I mean, it's it's a really powerful film. And, you know, one of the most striking things, I think, is is how you sort of, you know, you really grab the attention of the audience uh, by introducing this this issue, this park ranger who was murdered that you talked about. But then you take this issue surrounding illegal charcoal production, which at the beginning of the film, it seems like this like small sort of localized issue and as the film progresses, I mean, it really just blows up and you show how it's affecting the politics of the entire country and the whole region. You know, I, I just wonder, like, I, I mean, you, you explained before about how this this incident with this murder, you know, sort of immediately upon that happening, like that shifted the, your approach towards telling the story, right? So, I mean, I guess I'm wondering, like, you know, beyond that, that original in, intent, like that murder that really starts the story to what degree were you reacting to events as they were playing out around you and as this issue was developing yeah i mean i think that's part of the process of making a documentary um we started with an idea that there was for example just small um producers of charcoal that were you know kind of opportunistically getting into the national park and making charcoal and then using it for their own consumption and then as we got in to look at this in more detail, we found that it was quite different. They were entering into the national park to 
make charcoal, but then they were it was becoming a, a commodity that they were sending to the urban areas in Haiti, and that was what was you know actually it was income for them. They weren't just using this charcoal for their own subsistence. Um, and we also found, for example, that in other parts of the Dominican Republic, there was large scale charcoal, you know, wood charcoal production out of forest that was being sent to Haiti, but it was you know being done by Dominicans, and the trade and the trafficking was controlled by Dominicans, and it was no longer something that was just opportunistic. Uh, of, you know, a poor farmer going into the national park to make some kind of, you know, uh, living. It was actually, you know, much bigger industries that were operated almost sort of like a mafia. Um, and so the, a lot of that was just the process of discovery and investigation of a documentary. You know, we did, we went in with kind of a general idea of what we thought, uh, and then it turned into obviously to, to, to much more. Um, and so that's kind of what happened with the murder. You know, we never contemplated uh, that there was, you know, that this murder was going to happen. This happened after we had, you know, started putting together the project, you know, and it was just, it was just timely. I mean, it's tragic and timely uh, in the sense that it helped us tell the story. Um, and then, you know, other things happened that were serendipitous in a way, you know, this, this, the, there's a Dominican law that went into infect um, as we were, you know, kind of finishing the filming um, in 2013, 2014, where, you know, it was a law that restricted uh, immigration to the Dominican Republic and largely was geared towards impacting Haitians um, that were coming to the Dominican Republic looking for a better life. And that happened to fall into the realm of our story because the widow of the park ranger who was murdered, Melanio, the widow, uh, uh, widow was uh, Kalina, was a Haitian woman. And their children were half Dominican and half Haitian, and they lived on the border and were under threat of being deported under this new law. And so these were things that when we started in 2012, weren't on our radar at all. They weren't things we were thinking of. It weren't things that had been, uh, you know, kind of in our um, in our mindset about this at all. And then all of a sudden they became really relevant issues and really important issues um, that, that had to be covered. And so that's, I think, part of the process of you know, making a documentary is part of the process of um, discovery and exploration. It's one of the things that, you know, we were fortunate in some ways that these activities all occurred in the time period of the film. And it wasn't something that we would, you know, have to talk about in the director's cut later on. You know, these were things that happened in real time. Um, and, you know, that that gave our story you know, with kind of a, some impact and a level of, you know, of, of realness that, that, that really, I think, helped tell this personal story, but then turn it into something much more polemic. Yeah. And, you know, that you brought into play, you mentioned this, you know, this new law and, and which brought up all these issues over citizenship and in the Dominican Republic and led to lots of deportations. And, and I mean, the, it, it's just, I mean, watching your film, like you know, you're, you're following this this character, the, the the wife of of the the park ranger who was murdered right at the beginning of the film, and you're following her throughout the film, and then at the end, you know, you find out that she's getting deported, and I mean, it's just, it's crushing, right? I mean, it's, and uh, I mean, I, I guess what I'm wondering is, a, a lot of you know, environmental films, conservation documentaries, you know, they that you sort of they work to expose this issue, and then at the end of the film, you know, you reach this point where the, you know, it, there's sort of this. Uh, almost like a res resolution, right? Where it's like, but like, here's the potential solution. Like, here's what you, you know, here's what you can do or here are things that are, you know, uh, actions that are being taken to help resolve this issue, right? But like, you guys don't have that, right? I mean, your film ends 
And I think sitting in that screening room um, at the screening that I attended at the Dominican Republic Environmental Film Festival, I mean, it just you could feel like the anger in that room, right? Of like this this grave injustice is like being perpetrated on these people, and it's like, what do we do about this, right? Um, I, I mean, I, I guess I'm just wondering, like, there there must have been like a, a lot of thought going into like the the tone of the piece and like how you wanted to end it. Yeah. And I, it, the, we did this very much, uh, on purpose and we really thought about it, um, a lot because one of the frustrations, you know, and I can now say I'm a filmmaker, but even just as a environmentalist who watches a lot of documentary films with environmental subjects, um, one of the great frustrations is that you present these very complex and, and difficult and complicated issues um, and it takes you the better part of the movie to explain them. But then, you know, in order that the, 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 the viewer feels okay with what they're seeing, you kind of tack on something about, you know, uh, what they can do at home and, you know, they can recycle and they can, you know, screw in a, a fluorescent, uh, an incandescent light bulb and, you know, and they can, you know, donate to nature conservancy and that, that'll solve the problem. And, these are just much bigger problems. And, and what our message really wanted to be was that these are big challenges. This is important for the identity and the future of this country. These are lessons that are incredibly important, not just for the island of Hispaniola and Dominican Republic and Haiti, but for other places as well. And we wanted to leave people with sort of a pit in their stomach and feel like, wow, you know, this, we got to get on this. And in fact, um, since this film has come out and we've screened it all over the Dominican Republic, uh, I've given talks about it all over the Dominican Republic. We've gone and visited with politicians in uh, in the United States. We have uh, screening with the, the major political party uh, of the Dominican Republic, uh, the Tomorrow. So we were really pushing this hard as a as an element for change. Um, and that's one of the things that's been, I think, the most impactful part of the film is that it's the conversation and the dialogue that comes after the film. You know, we don't leave you feeling settled and happy that, you know, this problem's all set because we'll, we're all just going to make a donation and, you know, recycle. Really, there's big challenges that need to be thought about and there needs to be engagement and there needs to be some level of empowerment of people in the Dominican Republic and Haiti to hold their politicians and their governments to task and demand that there are better treatment of the people, that there's more priority put on the natural areas, that there's better policies for producing products and jobs that aren't impacting the environment so so um, so profoundly. And so I think that was kind of our our intention, and um, and it's something we're pretty proud of. You know, a lot of times you get into these films. You know, even Al Gore, as, as, as terrific as Inconvenient Truth was, there's a lot of environmental groups that are incredibly frustrated that just made it seem like, you know, these problems are totally soluble, solvable and, and, and approachable. And, you know, when we can just do our, each do our little piece and it's all going to be all set. Well, it's been over a decade since that film came out. And guess what? Things have not gotten a lot better and we need a lot more urgency to these problems. And that's, that was kind of our intention. Yeah, and I mean, I it it was it, it definitely had an effect on me. I mean, it was very, very powerful. I mean, I, I guess I mean you talked a little bit about you know the the screenings that you've uh, started doing in the Dominican Republic and how you're screening this for uh, politicians and stuff. I mean, this the, the film is very critical of um, like the political system and, and and politics in the in the Dominican Republic. I mean, I, I wonder like what kind of reaction you're getting. I mean, what are these discussions? 
that that have happened thus far? I mean, what are folks talking about, and 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 what kind of reaction are you getting from politicians? But I mean, also just the general public and like people who are who are coming to these screenings. Yeah, you know, it's really interesting. The um, when I first before the film was even out, and we'd only done some sort of small scale private screenings, um, I was invited by the American Chamber of Commerce in the Dominican Republic in Santo Domingo to give their uh, talk at their uh, monthly. Uh, luncheon, and they get a lot of press, and they get you know sort of the top business leaders in the country to come. And, and you know, I didn't even present the film; I just presented some of the issues in the film, um, the, the large-scale production of charcoal, both by Haitians in the national park, but also by you know Dominican-controlled uh, uh, entities and you know individuals um, throughout the country, and the exportation to Haiti, and it generated so much publicity right after um, the talk. It's basically all over the newspapers and all over the radio and all over television um, that the Ministry of Environment at the time and and we had a minister who was who is not uh, very effective in terms of protecting natural resources. He's much more effective effective in terms of parceling them out for sale. Um, he he came out immediately and denounced everything I had said in my talk, even though he wasn't there, and said, you know, this is all untrue. And look at the Dominican Republic. We've had growth of forest over the years, and this guy just doesn't know what he's talking about. And the reaction was so fierce against those comments and against the Ministry of Environment that less than a month later, when they had the change of administration, they changed the Minister of Environment. You know, and you know, and in some ways, we helped influence that. I wouldn't say, you know, I think the major driver of that change was that the Dominican public was so outraged that we were able to show what was happening, and yet, the, you know, that these issues were, you know, happening and they were denying them. They were saying it wasn't happening at all. And so that really kind of changed the, the drama quite a bit, it changed the, um, all the, 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 the conversation publicly. And then, you know, from there, the new minister has come in. In the first week on the job, he watched the film with me in a private screening. Uh, he's come out and, and, and really gone aggressively after the charcoal trafficking, has talked about it, the need to do, uh, you know, sustainable forestry projects for alternative livelihoods for people in the countryside. Uh, they're putting a lot more resources into the national parks. And so a lot of this happened, I would say, partially because of the film, but also in a big way because um, because the public was so outraged that this was happening. And that was kind of the reaction we wanted. You know, at first, the reaction of the government was basically like, none of this is true. And then when it got so obvious that it was true um, and that there were these things happening, that um, that really they needed to make a change in the ministry and the, and the language of the government and the language and the attitude of the people in the government has changed a lot. Now, there's still a lot to be done in the ministry of environment. They still are under-resourced. They still don't get enough of a budget. Um, there's still quite a few bad eggs in the in the ministry that, you know, have allowed these things to happen over the last decade, but and are still there operating because they're, you know, powerful political players or whatever. But, um, but for the most part, Part, you know, the, there's been a major change and a major shift in attitude, and I think we, we have somewhat to, to do with that. That's that's really amazing. I mean, that's you know, sort of your ultimate goal as a filmmaker is to to have some direct influence over over the topic that you're covering in the story. And so, really cool to to hear that you know the the film is already uh, influencing 
the the direction of this issue. So you've just started screening the film uh, outside of the DR, right? What what sort of the the you know the the plan for distribution? And I mean, how are things progressing? You know, on on a larger scale as far as you know, showing audiences outside of the D- Dominican Republic this this film. So uh, we had our um, our festival, our world premiere at Hot Docs Film Festival in Toronto in May. Uh, and then we had our U.S. premiere at Seattle International Film Festival um, in uh, June. Uh, and we actually were really honored. We won the Best Documentary, the Jury Prize for Best Documentary in Seattle. Um, and then we've been in close to a dozen film festivals in Europe, uh, South America, and United States, um, and including the, the, the Dominican environmental film festival that, that you attended um, and now we've had a theater premiere in the Dominican Republic and we had the film for three weeks in Dominican theaters uh, we are on seven different screens um, and then I've been personally doing all kinds of private screenings for political groups for uh, business groups for uh, you know small associations for you know schools for universities and basically trying to get the message out and trying to get this film and the messages behind the film uh, as much as we can into people's hands. So we've been pushing it hard. Uh, We'll have our television premiere in December um, on Univision. Um, and we've had uh, we'll have uh, participation in Doc NYC, which is a you know incredibly important uh, film festival uh, in New York City. So that'll be our New York premiere. Um, and then we're in uh, 2017. Uh, we're still deciding and still determining what the U.S. television distribution will look like, and then from there streaming and and on demand. So um, we've got kind of a big big uh, future ahead of us. We're pretty excited about the prospects. You know, we've got a lot of things that we've done up to now. It's already had a huge impact in the Dominican Republic. Um, we're already developing a plan because we want to share this film in Haiti as much as possible. So we've um, done a screen, two screenings in, in Port-au-Prince in Haiti. Uh, we have a number of partners there that we're working on uh, developing sort of different programs with them. Um, so we have all kinds of ideas in our head, and we're really you know, pretty enthusiastic about the prospects for the film to continue having you know, as much impact as we can. Yeah, that's awesome. It's, just, it's always great to hear about um, a, f- a film project like this, you know, really playing a significant role and in, in, in influencing the outcome of these issues. So um, really awesome to hear about all those successes. So, you know, my, my final question for you is, you know, you, we, we talked a lot about, you know, sort of uh, how you came to become involved in this film. And, um, you know, this was your first film. You didn't really have a background in filmmaking beforehand. Are, are you going to make another film? Are you, are, you, are you converted to a filmmaker now? What, what are your plans for the future? So, um, you know, I think my primary job right now is trying to figure out, you know, what is the, the, the best way to have this film that we've made continue to have as big as impact as possible, both in the Dominican Republic and Haiti um, and also um, in, you know, in other places. And so we're continuing to do screenings and festivals and, um, and trying to get the word out. We've been publishing op-ed pieces and articles in the Dominican Republic regularly. So that's our immediate goal. And then, um, you know, the film, the idea of film for me, it's, it's a powerful tool for environmental awareness, for creating uh, social change. Um, and so I think it's something I want to continue with. Um, although I don't, I don't have a specific project right now in mind because I'm really trying to concentrate all my efforts in death by a thousand cuts. Gotcha. Fair enough. Sounds like you've got a lot on your plate right now as far as, uh, 
this film project is going on. So um, really awesome to hear about this film project that you're working on and also all the work that, that you're involved with in, uh, out in Punta Cana and the ecotourism business. Yeah, really, really great to chat with you, Jake. Thanks a lot for coming on the show. I really appreciate it, and and thanks so much for the for your time and for uh, for your interest both in Death by a Thousand Cuts and in uh, in our work in in, in Grupo Punta Cana. All right, that was our interview with filmmaker and conservationist Jake Keel. It's really amazing to hear about the level of influence that Jake's story has already had within the Dominican Republic. It sounds like there has already been a really dramatic shift in the government's approach towards addressing this issue, which is really amazing to hear. More than anything else, I love hearing about success stories like this, where the true power of a well-told story is revealed. It gives me hope for the future and reinvigorates my motivation to continue producing video content focused on conservation. If you want to learn more about Jake's film, Death by a Thousand Cuts, as well as his work with Punta Cana in the Dominican Republic, you can head over to the show notes page for this episode where we'll have a list of relevant links. Those show notes can be found at wildlensinc.org slash EOC98. That's W-I-L-D-L-E-N-S-I-N-C dot org slash EOC98. If you enjoyed this episode of the podcast, you can subscribe to the show on iTunes or the podcatcher of your choice. And if you really want to show us some love, you can leave us an honest rating and review on iTunes. Just search for Eyes on Conservation in the iTunes store. The Eyes on Conservation podcast is a production of Wild Lens. Today's episode was produced by myself, your host, Matt Podolsky, and edited by Serena Simons. Our theme music is by The Humidors. The Humidors.